0: Hello, and welcome to our worship gathering. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day morning. I'd like to thank pastors Cameron, Bruce, and Dave for filling in while I was away on vacation. Uh, My family and I enjoyed traveling through 12 states and spending time with our family in both Colorado and Kentucky. I'm excited to say that we are going to re-engage our teaching series in Galatians called No Other Gospel. We are in the section where the Apostle Paul defended justification by faith with Scripture. In the previous section, chapters 3, verses 19 to 29, he described the purpose of the law and showed how it can never justify a person. In other words, he showed in that text, and really through the whole book, but in that text, he showed how a person will never be made right with God through their own good deeds or through obedience to God's laws. And the the law doesn't have the power to justify us, is what Paul has been saying. It only has the power to convict sinners and to point them to Jesus Christ, our only source for righteousness and justification, our only salvation. In chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says, introduces a new theme, and that theme we've been calling it temporary guardianship. Uh, The law served as a guardian until Christ came. Faith in Christ then brings adoption, which replaces this guardianship, the guardianship of the law. Think of it like this. If we are in Christ through faith, if we are trusting in Him for our salvation, We have become adopted sons and daughters, and the guardianship of the law has come to an end for us. In the next section, Paul continues to defend justification by faith by further developing this theme of temporary guardianship. This time he employs the examples of sonship and heirship. Please take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. We will be focusing on verses 1 through 7 this morning. I'd like to pray for God's help before we get to work. Father, we call upon you now to help us. We are tired and sleepy on a Sunday morning. Uh, We've had a busy uh, last week and, and busy yesterday, and there's just plenty of distractions and things in our lives And Lord, we just pray that all of those things would be set aside now as we focus on Your Word. We want to hear from You. And so, Lord, remove those distractions. Father, open our hearts and minds to Your Word. Teach us about justification by faith again. Help us to understand the temporariness of the law and how we are justified by faith and faith alone. So we commit our morning to You, commit this time to You. We pray that You would edify and build us up And that you would be glorified during this message. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, let's pick up where we left off five weeks ago. We can pick it up at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Paul says next. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is still, or he is under, guardians and managers until the day set by his father. Back in chapter 3, verse 29, Paul called those who were in Christ Abraham's offspring. He called them heirs according to the promise. Now here, in our text, in verses 1 and 2, he tells the Galatians that heirs are similar to slaves in that both are under guardians or he also uses the word managers here and they are under those guardians for a particular amount of time. And if we just think logically or biblically about how this works, think, if we think of, of slaves and I, I would not want us to think of American slavery, you know, hundred and some odd years ago, I want us to think of biblical slavery. But in any case, the slave is under a guardian, right, that would be his or her master, until he or she is set free by that master. Now the law of Moses required that that Hebrew slaves be released every six years, Exodus 21.2. So if you were a Hebrew and you owned Hebrew slaves, you could only hold them in that slavery for six years. After that, you had to turn them loose, Anything they acquired along the way, you had to let them take that with them. If they acquired a wife and children during that time, they all were set free every six years. And some slaves turned right around and said, I want to continue on in my servitude to you as my master because you've treated me well and my family. And and they could literally kind of just pledge themselves to being in that servitude the rest of their lives. Slavery was vastly different back then from what was just 150 or so years ago here in America. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't um, not that in other parts of the world that it wasn't horrific, I'm sure it was, probably more so in the Greco-Roman world, but in the Israelite world it wasn't like what we are used to today. In any case, the slave is under a guardian, this is Paul's point, the slave is under a guarding until that master sets him or her free. And then in a likewise manner, or in a similar manner, the heir, an heir, someone who is an heir to a family fortune or to a particular family, the heir is also under a guardian, just like the slave, who's his guardian, his parents, more particularly his father. He is under the guardianship of his father until the date set by his father. Now, in the ancient world, the division between childhood and adulthood was much more definitive than it is in most societies today. Uh, We really don't have any sort of set time here. I know that by law, um, in most states, including California, a a, a boy becomes a man at 18. But you'd have great difficulty in finding an 18-year-old who actually acts acts like a man. Uh, But in in our culture, we say that that's around 18. In other cultures, it's it's a little different. Um, but back in Paul's day, it was a little more definitive. They had some, some things that were established and in place. Although ancient customs did vary in Paul's day, there was usually a prescribed age when a child, especially a boy, would officially come of age and take on the privileges and responsibilities of adulthood. Until the age of 12, a Jewish boy was under the direct and absolute control of his father. But at the bar mitzvah, that's a, a phrase we're familiar with. We've heard of that. And this this was true in Paul's day, just as it is today in, in many Jewish circles. But at the bar mitzvah, observed on the first Sabbath after his 12th birthday, the boy's father would pray for God to take charge of his son. He would kind of commit his son to God. He is now under your guardianship, uh, in a sense, God. And then the boy would also pray and commit himself to God and vow to take responsibility for his own life, his own spiritual life, his own physical life, his own actions. On the day set by his father, and in Jewish circles in Paul's day, that would have been 12 years old during that bar mitzvah, at that particular date or on that date, the boy was no longer simply an heir de jour. That means an heir by right, but he became an heir de facto. That means an heir by fact or a literal possessor of an inheritance and literal possessor of adulthood and those sorts of things. And he, he on that day, also assumed the moral and spiritual responsibilities of all the other adults. Now, Paul's point in verses one and two is is fairly simple. Remember, he's driving at a particular point showing how the law has a temporary guardianship and and faith takes over where that guardianship ends. That's his whole point here. He's using these sort of, they're, they're really metaphors is what he's using here. And his point is really simple here. The law, and here it is, the law is a temporary guardian just as fathers and masters are temporary guardians over their children and slaves. And it's guardianship ends when Christ and faith come. And and we know this to be true, especially back in chapter 3, verses 24 to 25, where Paul really bangs home that point. Now, in the next line, Paul draws a parallel to help his readers. We can move to verse 3. He says this, in the... Same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. This is a, a really what it is. is It's a more Gentile, non-Jewish friendly way of communicating the exact same point he makes in verses 1 and 2. Uh, we mustn't forget whom Paul was writing to here in this letter. The Galatians were non-Jewish Gentiles. And a Gentile reader might not grasp what it means to be under the temporary guardianship of the law. A Gentile might not understand what that means and what Paul's talking about here, as well as maybe a Jewish reader, a Jewish person. They understood the law. They followed the law. They obeyed the law. They understood that it was a guardian, in a sense, in these sorts of things. And so what Paul is essentially doing here is providing a parallel that makes the exact same point, but it's more Gentile or non-Jewish friendly. We need to remember that Gentiles in the ancient world did not know God's law, nor did they submit to it. And I would say the same thing is true of today. I didn't submit to God's law when uh, I'm a Gentile, I'm non-Jewish, and Before I knew Christ, I didn't submit to God's law. I had no concept of it. I'd heard of the Ten Commandments, but I certainly didn't submit to them and and try to obey those things. In Paul's day, it was the same. You know, back then they didn't, Gentiles didn't practice Jewish rites of practice or or of passage, pardon me, of passage, like bar mitzvah and and so on. They, They had no concept of these things. They had their own versions, but they didn't do bar mitzvahs. They didn't do circumcisions, which is what the Judaizers want them to do as these new Christians they are. Paul is, in a sense, bringing this argument down to his audience's level here in verse 3 because he does not want the Galatians to misunderstand the truths that he's putting before them. And we need to remember, these are life-saving truths. The moment we add works of the law plus faith in justification, we are accursed, as Paul said in chapter 1. We can't add works, anything. We can't add works, we can't add anything at all to justification. It's by faith alone. And the minute we add anything to it, we are in big trouble. We have deviated and gone away from the true gospel. We're now involved in in another gospel, Paul says in chapter 1. If anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, and what he's saying is in chapter 1, a gospel that says salvation and justification, righteousness, all these beautiful things that that Christ does for us, they come to us through what we do and what we believe. That is, in essence, another gospel. The the true gospel of the Bible has always taught that we are justified by faith alone. When we believe in Jesus Christ, God counts us as righteous and he justifies us and he adopts us. It's not because of what we do. Our greatest works are nothing more than filthy rags. It says in Isaiah 64, I believe. We've got to get this through our heads, and Paul wants to make sure that these people understand what he's saying as he gives these examples of of heirs and slaves and temporary guardianship. And and here he does it in verse 3. When he wrote, when we were children in verse 3, he was referring to our life before Christ as unbelievers. You know, before we were uh, believers and, and began to trust in Christ, before the Spirit came in power and changed our hearts, and we began to believe. Before that happened, we were like children, very immature, sort of uh, a kind of, um, yes, carefree, I would say, but also not understanding these important things and kind of just doing our own thing. We were, in a sense, children. That's what he's saying here. In fact, the verse 3 could be rendered in the same way. Uh, we also, when we were unbelievers, right, when we were uh, children, but when we were unbelievers, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, I want you to think of it like this. I want you to think of verses one and two and verse three like this. In verses one and two, Paul is speaking in Jewish terms. A Jewish child is under the guardianship of the law until a certain time. That's really his point. And verse, verse three here, and really, if you add verse four, he's speaking in Gentile terms, non-Jewish terms. A Gentile child is, is very similar to the Jewish child, except he's under a different kind of guardianship or system. He is enslaved to the elementary principles of the world until a certain time. So, in verses 1 and 2, his point is the Jewish child's under the law until a certain time. And in verses really 3 and 4, the combination of the two, a Gentile is enslaved to the elementary principles until a certain time. What's his point here? His point here is that both children, Jewish child, Gentile child, both children have something in common. And that is the fact that neither of them are free. One's under one particular system. The other is under another system. One is under the law, the other is under the world system. In other words, both are in bondage. Both are in a a kind of slavery, in a sense. And, And they remain in this mode. One remains under the law, the other remains in the world system. They remain in this particular mode until they are liberated by Christ through works of the law? No, through faith. That is when they enter adulthood. Faith is is our rite of passage when we pass from being unbelieving children into kind of a spiritual adulthood where we are not under the guardianship anymore, but we are secured in Christ. Upon trusting in Christ, we become men and women. We become adults. We're not kids anymore. This is what Paul is teaching here. Now, remember, the Judaizers were trying to persuade the Galatians to put themselves under the law. They were saying, look, the only way that you can actually really be saved and be a true Christian is, yes, it is about believing in Jesus, undoubtedly, but it's also about obeying all the laws. It's about being circumcised and and, and obeying all the dietary things in the Old Testament and do this. They wanted these Christians, these non-Jewish Christians, to, in a sense, become Jewish so they could be truly saved. And what Paul is saying here through these examples in verses 1 through 3, he is saying this, the law is for children who need a guardian. It is not for those who have reached adulthood through faith in Christ. What he's essentially doing here through these metaphorical examples is he is once again establishing the the temporary guardianship of the law. It's in place for a a period of time, and then it comes to an end. When does it come to an end? When a person trusts in Christ, when they have faith in Christ. And and, and just just think logically here about Paul's argument. It's it's really quite simple but brilliant, but just think about it here. Maybe I can give you an example from, from my own life in a sense. Me, as a Uh, I I guess I'm a semi-mature Christian. I've been a Christian for about 20 years now. I believed in Christ for the first time about 20 years ago, and I did not do that on my own. That was a supernatural work of God in my life. But I am a a 20-year Christian here. Now, if I were to go back to the law of God, if I were to put myself under God's law and, and determine myself to go ahead and obey all of that, thinking that that's somehow going to earn me a place with God or it's going to somehow justify me. That would be like me moving back in with my mother. Think about it. That would be like you as a veteran Christian moving back in with your mother or as someone who's been on their own for a long time. And now you move back in with your parents. I mean, I'm, I'm 51 years old, for crying out loud. Um... And and I'm not not slamming those who have fallen on hard times. This COVID thing's been a disaster. People have lost their jobs. Some of them have probably had to move back in with their folks. I get it. I I am not picking on those people. I'm saying that I'm giving you an example from my own life. Going back to the law as an adult would be like me going back to childhood under my mother. I'm 51 years old, semi-mature. I say that because that's true. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm a goofball. I have a wife, I have my own children, I have adult children. You just stop and think about that. I've got a house, I've I've been living on my, I've been on my own for 31 years. Now I have to admit, when I was about 15, I left the house the first time and I came back and I left and I came back and I I mean, I I was in and out a few times, but when I met Rachel, my wife, I I stayed with her and I've never went back. That was 31 years ago. Now, why would I go back to my parents? Why would I do that? I've been out of the house for 31 years. Why would I put myself back under my mother's guardianship again? It makes absolutely no sense. She already raised me. Her, her job is complete. It's finished. And I think she did a pretty decent job considering... Uh, The circumstances, you know, when I was 14, my dad left, and he was a pretty much deadbeat dad in these sorts of things. It wasn't easy for her. She worked three jobs, and, you know, she did a decent job, I think. She did the best she could. I certainly don't hold anything against her. What you need to understand from my own personal example is my mother is not my guardian. She's no longer my guardian. She has not been my guardian for 31 years. She's my mother, and I'm called to honor her right? And I love her and I care for her, but, and she cares for me, but she is not my guardian. She was my guardian at one time, but then I became an adult and started to take care of myself, all the while not knowing God, but that God was indeed taking care of me. I just didn't know Him. The law is not my guardian. It's not my guardian. My mother's not my guardian. The law is not my guardian. I was under the guardianship of the law at one time. I had no idea. I was, I was under it. I, I was going to be penalized because of it. And when we think of guardianship here, I don't want you to think of like, um, like a temporary kind of parent. Guardianship is more like, a, more like guards at a prison. That's the kind of guardianship it is. You're, you're incarcerated under God's law. The law acts like a warden against you and keeps you incarcerated because we violate God's law. So it's not a a positive example of guardianship. But I'm not under my mother's guardianship. I moved out 31 years ago. I'm not under the law's guardianship. I put my trust in Christ 30 or 20 years ago or so. I'm not under anyone's guardianship. I was at one time. Who's my guardian now? Is it the law? No, I'm not under its guardianship. My guardian now is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in me. He's, he's living the Christian life in me and through me. In fact, He has sealed me for the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. So Christians are not under the law's guardianship any longer just as a great many of you, including me, are not under our parents' guardianship. That's the parallel here. And, and he's really striking at a couple of parallels. He's got, that's kind of the Jewish example, and he's got the Gentile example as well going here in verse 3. In a similar way, the, the world, the world system that we know of, the world that we live in, in a sense, it is for unbelievers. This world is not for believers. We we, we don't belong to this world. We're aliens and strangers here. We belong to a kingdom that is is being established and that is coming through Christ. The world is for unbelievers, those who are outside of Christ. It's unbelievers that follow the ways of this world, that engage in, in all of the crazy politics and protesting and they're the ones that follow the ways of this world the empty philosophies and strategies and deceitful schemes of men and of the devil the world is for unbelievers it's not for those who are repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ and I say repenting because every true believer didn't just repent one time they spend their whole life repenting and turning from sin they spend their whole life trusting in Christ. They, d- they didn't put their trust in Christ on a Saturday night at a revival and that was it and never trusted Him again. You keep trusting in Him. You keep repenting. And, and this world here is not for true Christians who keep repenting and keep trusting in Christ. It's not for us. The world is not for spiritual adults. Now, if I as a Christian, is, I as a spiritual adult, so to speak, if I... Um, if I return to the world or return to its elementary principles, I'm putting myself back underneath its slavery. Just as the, the, the Jewish child would return to his home and put himself under, the, under the, the, the care and guardianship of his parent. If I go back to the world or if I engage in its elementary principles, I, I'm, I'm, I'm re-engaging in the slavery that Christ delivered me from. I become like Paul's friend and and confidant. There was a guy named Demas who did ministry with with Paul. Should change his name to dummy. He went back to the world, 2 Timothy 4.10. He just kind of walked away from Paul and his associates and went back into the world. It's like he got saved and left Las Vegas and ended up going back a few years later because he never lost that taste for the world. He's Probably never truly a converted man, I would think. So you have the idea here of of the guardianship of the law, which we are not under, nor are we under the elementary principles of this world. We have been rescued and pulled out from under those systems. And now we walk in Christ and in absolute, total, true freedom. I want you to notice how Paul does not specify what the elementary principles of the world represent. He does not take any time to explain them to us here. He doesn't go through a quick punch list. He doesn't do that because he doesn't want to spend a lot of time on that, and I certainly don't want to spend a lot of time on it. That's not his point. What he's simply saying is is that if you're justified by faith in Christ, you're not under that system. You're not under the law. You're not under the world. Now, some hold that Paul is referring to the demon spirits who rule the present world system. This could be true. Others say it refers to stars and therefore to pagan systems of astrology. Now, we kind of laugh at astrology. You know, if you get a Sunday paper, there's usually an astrology section in there and it talks about, you know, Pisces and all these things and all that. And it's it's really just kind of superstitious and goofy. But back in Paul's day, astrology was a major religion. It was the real deal. Um, It has its roots in in Babylonian theology. They were big time into astrology back then. In fact, uh, Islam has its roots in in, um, Chaldonian or Babylonian theology. So some thought that it had to do with demon spirits that run the world system. They thought that it had to do with the astrology of that day. Others believe that it refers, and I think this is more accurate, they believe that it refers to the basic elementary things of human religion. This interpretation, according to John MacArthur, seems to be appropriate in this context, especially in, in light of the fact that in verse 9 of this very chapter, the same phrase is connected with the ceremonial rituals of human religion. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul warns, he says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now, in that particular text, the Apostle Paul clearly associates the elementary uh, principles of the world. What does he associate those things with? Deceptive human tradition and philosophy. You must understand, the heart of Jewish religion in Paul's day was the system of rabbinic traditions that had superseded and stifled the revealed truth of the Old Testament. In the Gentile world of his day, human philosophy and pagan religions were closely interrelated. And both Jewish traditions and pagan religions centered in man-made systems of works. In other words, the religions of Paul's day were the elementary principles of Paul's day in religion were all about earning your way with a deity. They were all about justification with a deity through works. That's what he means here. MacArthur says they were these elementary principles of of false religion in Paul's day that were filled with rules and regulations, the obeying of which were thought to make a person right with deity. The elementary principles of all human religion, whether Jewish or Gentile, ancient or modern, inevitably involved the idea of achieving divine acceptance by one's own efforts, by one's own efforts. Now this seems to be the meaning here in this particular text. Elementary principles of the world refers to trying to earn our way with God. That's what Paul is talking about here, and that fits with the context of this awesome letter. It has to do with trying to self-justify before God through good deeds or works of the law. Those are the elementary principles. If If I go back, and what Paul's saying here is that as a spiritual adult who has faith in Christ... Why would you go back to the elementary principles of this world, which represent trying to earn your way with God? You're an adult Christian in Christ. You don't go back to trying to earn your way. That's what he's saying here. As, As a Jewish convert, you don't go back to the law. As a Gentile convert, you don't go back to the world. You've been delivered from these things. You're fully justified. This is what he's teaching these people here. It's really brilliant what he's doing. Now, it's imperative that we understand that we as Christians are not supposed to go back to the law. I mean, we can utilize the law. It gives us an idea of of how the Christian can please God, you know, by loving his neighbor and loving God. It's it's good. It has value in in, in terms of that. But I mean, putting ourselves under it and and saying, I'm going to try to obey this as best I can because I think that's what God wants for my life because that's how he'll accept me. That is a wrong mentality. That is false religion. As Christians, we are not supposed to go back to the law. We are not supposed to return to the elementary principles of this world. We've been delivered from those things. We are now in Christ. We, and how are we in Christ? Are we in Christ because of what we do? No. Are we in Christ because we obey God's law? No. Are we sons and heirs because we obey God's laws? the Judaizers were teaching? No. All of these things come to us through faith. It's all appropriated to us through faith. We believe these things are ours. It has nothing to do with what we're doing or what we're trying to earn here. And I would just simply encourage us before we move to the next couple of verses that I really think it's time for us Christians, especially in this room, to start acting like adults. How do we act like adults? We, We act like Christian adults by not binding ourselves or our brothers and sisters to the law. That's one way that we act like adults. Now, can I give you an example of what that would look like to bind someone according to God's law? Yeah, absolutely. How about tithing? Do we all understand in this room that that tithing, you know, the idea of giving 10%, really, if you add up all the tithes that, that was required of an Israelite in the Old Testament, it was about 30-something percent. It wasn't 10%. But do we all understand that, that tithing is, is rooted in Old Testament law? And when a preacher stands in the pulpit and tells his people to tithe and, and when he adds stupidity to that, like by saying, if you, t- if, you know, if you give a thousand dollars today, God's going to give you a thousand dollars over the course of the next six months or, or he's going to keep you cancer free and all that baloney. Do we understand that when a, when a preacher stands in the pulpit and, and pounds his people to start tithing, he's trying to bind them to an Old Testament law that does not apply to those Christians? It's true. Giving, Uh, Christian giving is is defined in in the New Testament by Paul as the person giving with joy and a cheerful attitude. There's no number that's represented there. There's no percentage that's represented there. And I don't want you that are here today to think, well, great, I don't have to give anymore. Uh, That's a pagan response. Pagans don't want to give anything to God. Christians should want to give everything to God because they're trusting in Him. But when somebody tells you and beats you like they do in some parts of, uh, in some churches throughout our town, because they're big on the tithe, they hit people with that tithe, that's Old Testament law. It doesn't apply. If I go back to tithing, I'm putting myself back under the law. No, that's why we don't talk about tithing at this church, and we encourage people to, to reflect on what's been done for them in Christ and through Christ, what He's accomplished for them, and to give generously and in great gratitude to Him, and to not rely on their own resource, but to rely on the God who provides the resource. But that's an example of trying to bind someone to the law. You better tithe, you better tithe, you better tithe. And I would say another way that we can, uh, we can show forth that we are acting like adults is you know, quit binding ourselves and our brothers and sisters to the law, and we really like to bind our brothers and sisters to the law. But it would also uh, be we need to stop trying to merit something from God. That would be the bigger example to me because I think we all fall into that trap. You know, we're saved by grace. I think we get this and we enjoy that grace. We love the mercy of God, but still there are times when we engage in sin and things and things happen. We... We feel like, well, you know, I don't think God's pleased with me. And maybe if I do this, that, and the other, then He'll be pleased with me. Maybe I've lost God's favor because I've done this. And maybe I can do X, Y, and Z and gain back His favor. Or I've lost His blessings because, you know, I was stupid the other day. And and maybe I can get back His blessings. We're just trying to earn with God. That's like going back to the law. There's nothing to be earned from God. Christ earned everything for us. Just believe that and trust in him. Should we not try to live a holy life? Of course we should. We should desire that. It should be a desire that comes within us. If you have the spirit of God in you, the spirit of God wants the things of God, and that's holy living. But, you know, when we make mistakes and blow it, we shouldn't start binding ourselves to the law. Well, the law has condemned me. Look at me now. I'm in big trouble. No, you're saved by grace through faith. There's nothing that, that I can do to make God love me less. There's nothing that I can do to make Him love me more. God loves me as much as He loves Christ. He sent Christ to die for me. That's the highest expression and example of the love of God. How much does He love you? How much does He love Christ? He loves Christ. Christ is the apple of his eye. It's his only, Christ is his only begotten son. He loves him. He affirmed this during the ministry of Christ in these, the time that Christ was baptized and other times where, where God spoke from heaven and affirmed his love for Christ. Well, guess what? He loves you in the same way. He loves you in the same way with a deep, profound, sacrificial, agape, agape, love. There's nothing that you can do to increase that or decrease it. I'm a parent when my children sin. I don't love them less. Yeah, I might whoop some rear ends, but it doesn't mean I don't love them. It doesn't mean that I don't love them less. In fact, sometimes when they sin, my heart breaks for them and I love them more. Now, that never happens with God because He loves perfectly at all times. But you don't lose love for your child when your child blows it. You might discipline that child. You might Speak to that child compassionately. There's a, a number of ways you'll respond. But do you all of a sudden hate your child? Do you stand back and say, okay, now I'm going to make little Jimmy earn his way back into my favor? Of course you don't do that. You don't do that. No good parent would do that. And guess what? God is a perfect parent. He's a perfect parent. We don't need to go back to the law, and, 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 and that's how we show forth that we're adults. We don't bind ourselves to the law We don't try to earn our way with God. We don't go back to the elementary principles of this world. This world is destroying itself and is ultimately going to be destroyed by Christ. Uh, Drive a big gas-guzzling SUV, eat a steak, cut down a tree. It's all going to burn. That's what MacArthur would say. Apparently when you say those things, the tree hugging people and the the meat hating people and the electric car loving people, they all hate those kinds of statements. But it's all going to burn. It was destroyed once by flood. Now it's going to be destroyed by fire. Why are we investing into this thing? It's going to perish. I think we need to honor God with our resource. And while we're here, it is a beautiful creation, but at the same time, it's going to roast. Don't Go back to the law. Don't go put yourself under the law. Don't bind others to the law. Don't try to merit something from God. Don't, don't go back to the elementary principles of this world. Don't let your life be guided by what the world says. If, 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 if Fauci and those, those you know, his cronies up there in, in Washington tell you to put on a mask, throw all your masks away. Do the opposite of what these people say. That's pretty, pretty rebellious, huh? I don't believe any of those guys... We're we're sitting here waiting for the media and waiting for the world to tell us what our next move is. We get our guidance from this, not from this world. Not from this world. Don't don't submit to the elementary principles of this world any longer. You're an adult when you don't do that. In the next two lines, Paul describes the source of divine adoption and sonship. Really, he describes these things, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is, this is one of those potent, concise, awesome theological statements. It's as memorable as John three sixteen. Everyone knows that, including the guys at the football games who don't even know Jesus and hold the signs up. This is an amazing set of statements here by Paul. Now, the Judaizers Judaizers were saying that adoption and sonship comes through the law. Look, the more of the law you obey, the more pleasing you are to God, the more he's going to adopt you and give you an inheritance, the more he'll make you an heir. That was their theology. Now, back in chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, Paul absolutely annihilated this false theology, how by pointing to the Abrahamic promise that predates the law and, and uh, this Abrahamic promise that not only predates the law, but that it, it predicts that Gentiles will receive the inheritance of adoption and sonship and, 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 and these sorts of things. who uh, Through whom? Through Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. And that these things, the Abrahamic promise predicted that these things would not only come to Gentiles, but that they would come to Gentiles through what means? Through works of the law, like the Judaizers were saying? No, 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 no. Through faith alone, not through the law. Paul attacked, he savaged their theology back in that text. And he's doing it again here with this concise, beautiful statement, this memorable statement in verses 4 and 5. He's attacking their terrible, worthless theology, their false religion. This time he points directly to the source of divine adoption and sonship, which is whom? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The, the, The source of our adoption, the source of our sonship, our daughtership, is Jesus Christ, not our own merits, not our own works, not our works of the law. We don't earn it. We can't get there. It's in and through Jesus Christ. Now, I like what MacArthur says about this phrase here, When the fullness of time had come. Listen to what MacArthur says. The fullness of time, this is when God sent His Son, right? The fullness of time refers to the completion of the period of preparation in God's sovereign timetable of redemption. When the law had fully accomplished its purpose of showing man his utter sinfulness and inability to live up to God's perfect standard of righteousness, God ushered in a new era of redemption. When he sent forth his son, he provided the righteousness for man that man could not provide for himself. I think that's a a perfect theological statement that perfectly captures the meaning of when the fullness of time comes. We always ask, like, well, you know, we know that God sent Jesus 2,000 years ago. Well, why did he do that? It was according to his timetable. It was at the perfect moment in history for God to do that. That was when God ordained to do it, and that's when He did it. Now, I want you to notice some more phrasing here. Notice how it says, when the, uh, it says the Son, Jesus Christ, when He came, it says He was what? Born of a woman. Why was Jesus born of a woman? Well, He had to be born of a, a woman. Why? He had to be, he had to be truly human, uh, we need to remember that, that, that sin was brought into the world, that, 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 that a man, a, a human being named Adam, and, and you had, you had his, his co-pilot there, Eve. Those two human beings, they're the ones that brought sin into creation. They're the ones that caused the fall through disobedience. So, so uh, as Milton would say, paradise was lost through human beings. And that means that a hum- only a human being, since it was lost through a human being, only a human being could bring it back, could, could reinstate it, to, could, could, um, could fix the situation. So Jesus came born of a woman. Why? Because our federal head, Adam, was a human and he completely blew it. Jesus has to come as a human to save us, to redeem us, to restore what had been lost through Adam. That's why. Now we need to understand it, and I don't want to get into the personhood of Christ too much here because that's not Paul's point, but... Jesus also had to be God because God alone is righteous. God alone is capable of meeting His righteous standards. We can't meet His righteous standards. We're sinners. Even the greatest of men are but sinners. So Jesus comes and He's born of a woman. He's, He's, He's God. He's man. Or He is, as R.C. Sproul said, He is truly God and truly man. That's who He is today. Notice also the text, it says the Son, Jesus Christ, was not only born of a woman, but He was born under the law. Why did He have to be born under the law? Well, Paul says He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And I like that word redeem, in the Greek it is exagorazo, and it means to deliver. Look, we are all required to obey God's law perfectly, and we are all under its guardianship, we are all under its penalty. Jesus had to come and be under the law to obey the law to satisfy God's righteous demands and earn for us a righteousness that we can't conjure up on our own. He had to go under the law because we've broken the law. If he goes under the law and satisfies the law, then then those who believe in him are no longer under the law, no longer under its guardianship, no longer under its penalty. He came to deliver us from the law and from its penalty. Why on earth would anyone listen to the Judaizers? Why are you trying to go back under the law? Christ came to take you out from under it. That's his point. He came under the law of God to obey the law of God, to satisfy God's holy standards so that he could deliver us from the penalty we deserve for violating God's holy standards and also to pave the way for our adoption as sons and daughters. Christ came to do that for us. And and when we believe in Him, it is appropriated to us through faith, not through works of the law. Think of it like this. A a sinner must first be delivered from the penalty of the law and be made righteous before God will actually receive them in adoption. You know, there's lots of talk today coming from pulpits about God's unconditional love for sinners. It's a lie. God's love toward sinners Rebellious sinners is conditioned. What is it conditioned upon? Repentance. You will never taste an ounce of God's love without repentance. You must repent. You must turn away from your unbelief. Stop rejecting the fact that God God exists. Stop rejecting His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He sent to die for sinners. God's Love is conditioned upon repentance. No one is going to, you're not going to experience his saving love at least. You'll experience other types of love from him and and, and maybe common grace. But you're not going to experience the love that, that we talk about in Scripture without repentance. It says in Scripture that God doesn't love sinners. He despises them and destroys them. And when people stand in a pulpit and say, God has unconditional love for you, they're lying. They don't understand what Scripture says. And, and the truth that, 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 that Paul is boring out here is, 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 is no less true. There are certain conditions that must be met before God will adopt a sinner. There are things that have to happen, that have to transpire. He doesn't just love us and just adopt us just as we are. You have to have the repentance there. He doesn't adopt sinners unconditionally. Now, I would would definitely say that God loves His own children unconditionally because it's based on the merits of Christ. If it weren't for the merits of Christ, then His love would would continue to be conditioned upon believers. But since God loves the Son and sees the Son's righteousness on us, He loves us unconditionally. But He does not... Here, what Paul is pointing to, he does not adopt sinners unconditionally. Certain conditions must be met before he adopts people like you and me. And guess what Jesus came to do? He came, he was born of a woman, he was born under the law, he lived a perfect life. Everything that he did, when he came, everything that he did, he did in in the effort to fulfill and satisfy and accomplish every one of those requisite things to our adoption. He came to secure it all. He came to meet all of the conditions that that the Father put out there. He satisfied the law's demands through perfect obedience. He paid for... These are all the things that... These are the conditions for your adoption. Jesus satisfied the law's demands through perfect obedience. He paid for our transgressions, our sins of the law, our, our breaches of the law with His own precious blood on the cross. And He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for what? Our justification. Those were the conditions that were, had to be met for us to be adopted. Christ met them all. We put our faith in Christ. It, all the blessing, all of the adoption, the heirship, everything, it all comes to us. It's all appropriated to us through faith. Christ met those conditions. Uh, there's no level of obedience to the law that's going to meet those conditions. Every time we try to obey the law to meet those conditions, we drive ourselves further and further away from God's grace and further and further into false religion. It's not about what we do. It's about believing in what Christ did. When we trust in Him for our salvation, His earned righteousness is applied to us. God sees us as spiritually clean. He justifies us, and then He adopts us as His children, and His adoption is permanent. And it is not contingent on our obedience or our works of the law or anything else. It is contingent upon the merits of Christ, which are rock solid and eternal. Christ did these things for us. He, God sent Him at the perfect time. He, he was born of a woman because He had to be truly, fully man. He, he lived under the law to satisfy those demands and, and everything that was requisite to our adoption. He did it all for us and it all comes to us through faith. Our works of the law have nothing to do with it. Why on earth would we listen to the Judaizers and try to go back to the law? The law has no purpose in our lives. None. In the last two lines, Paul describes the sign of divine adoption and sonship. Let's move to uh, verses 6 and 7. He says this, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So so here's the question here. How do we know if we have received this divine adoption and sonship? How do we know if we belong to God? How do we know if we are God's children? You will hear from pulpits today that every person who's ever lived is God's child. It is not true. God has adopted children and that's it. He does not adopt natural men. Not everyone who lives, who has lived, lived in the past, who lives now, who will live in the future is God's child. God only adopts children. Not everyone belongs to Him. It's only those whom He adopts. But how do we know if we've been adopted? How do we know if we belong to Him? Paul says, if we are sons, here's what happens. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And This this phrase, the Spirit of His Son, it's just, it's just a, another way to say the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit that Paul's referring to here. The Spirit of, of Jesus, the Spirit of God's Son, that refers to the Holy Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit in us, we have received divine adoption and sonship. We have an inheritance coming to us. We belong to God. We are His children. We are heirs. Now here's another question how do we know if we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts? How do we know if the Spirit is in us? Right? I mean, if if the Spirit is the sign of our adoption and, and, and the Spirit in us is the sign of adoption, how do we know if we have the Spirit? Well, there's things to look for. Have we been born again? The Holy Spirit causes spiritually dead sinners to be born again, right? John chapter 3, verses 3 and 8, the the Holy Spirit is like the wind. He cannot be determined. He cannot be um, uh, predicted. He he goes into into the heart of a person and makes them a new person, gives them a new heart, and He remains in them. That's what it means to be born again. You become a new person through the possession of the Holy Spirit who makes you a new person from the inside out. You are being made new from the inside out. If we have been born again, the Spirit is in us, okay? Are you a born-again person? Or are you the same old Phil? You the same old Jen? You're the same old Betsy, you're the same person that you were back in high school or in college or wherever. You should be a different person. If you've been born again, you're gonna be different. That's how you know if you have the Spirit. Another way would be: are you convicted of sin? The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, John 16:8. If we are convicted of sin, the Holy Spirit is in us. And I'm not talking about mere conscience. You know, the conscience God has put in us, it it kind of is like the law of God in us, and it tells us when we're doing something wrong. The trouble with conscience these days is people have sinned so grievously and so frequently that they have seared their conscience, and the conscience can't discern right or wrong any longer. The conscience now begins to to start to say things like, yeah, that sin is good. We're not, talking about, we're not talking about feeling a little bit bad about your, your sins and all that. We're talking about conviction, where, where you sin and, and you know the Spirit is in you and He is convicting you and saying you have sinned against the Lord. You need to confess this, Phil. You need to turn from this. There's a difference. Are you convicted of sin? Does sin continue to convict you? Or does the Spirit continue to convict you? Right? When you sin, the Spirit is there. Is that you? How about if we... Do we love, do we know and love Jesus Christ? You know, knowing Jesus in a saving way, not just with your head, but with your heart, and and trusting in Him and believing in Him and loving Him, that's a sign that you have the Spirit in you. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit who reveals Jesus Christ to us and produces love in our hearts for Jesus Christ. John 16, 14, Romans 5, 5. You don't love Jesus on your own. The Spirit is working that out in you. But if you know and love Jesus, then the Spirit is in you. How about this example? Do we have the fruits of the Spirit, right? Paul talks about them in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. If the Spirit is in us, we're going to have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. We're going to have self-control. Boy, we don't see a lot of self-control today. But you'll have these things. These are the fruits of the Spirit. If the Spirit is there, these things will be there. Will they be there in full strength at all times? No, because we still have a sinful nature that the Spirit is battling with. But they will be there. You will have a a genuine love for others, especially for other believers. You will have a, a joy about you that's unshakable and can't be destroyed by cancer or anything else. It's bizarre, it's crazy, but it's there. You'll have a peace about you, especially when the storms come. You will learn to be patient. You will have a patience that you didn't have before. I, I really struggle with that one. There'll be a kindness about you. There'll be a goodness about you. You'll love good things. You're not going to like sinful things. You'll like good things. There'll be a faithfulness about you. You'll, you'll commit yourself to the Lord and obeying Him, and you'll commit yourself to others. You'll become a person who follows through. You'll become a man or woman of your word. You'll be faithful. You'll be gentle with people not bludgeoning them, and you'll have self-control. You'll be able to beat your body into submission to the Spirit. These are the fruits of the Spirit. If you have these fruits, then you probably have the Spirit in you. Now, these are all legitimate, important things to look for to determine whether you have the Spirit or not, which determines whether you are adopted or not. They all show that the Spirit is in us, but they are not what Paul had in mind here. Now, he talked about these things in other places, Right? We've already gone to Galatians 5, we've gone to Romans 5 a moment ago, but this is not what he had in mind here. Look at the end of verse 6, here's the sign, the adopted son or daughter who has the Spirit will cry what? Abba, Father. Abba is uh, basically, it's a, 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 it's a diminutive of the Aramaic word for Father. W- what does Abba basically mean in Aramaic? It means Daddy, it means Papa. That's what it means. It was actually a term of endearment used by young children of their fathers and and could be, according to MacArthur, translated as daddy or papa. What is Paul saying here? If the Holy Spirit is in us, we will have a personal, intimate relationship with our heavenly father. We will see him as papa. We will respond to him as papa. We will cry out to him as papa. Do you have to use the word papa? No, you can use the word heavenly father. The point isn't the title that you use of him. The point is is how you receive Him and how you interact with Him. Is God the Father your dad? Do you see Him as your spiritual father? Do you submit to Him as your spiritual father? Is there evidence of an, of an intimacy there between you and God the Father? If there is, you have the Spirit. There are going to be times... When we literally cry out, Daddy or Papa or Father, I need your grace. I need your help in this situation. Or you're just going to cry out with an absolute, utter, unshakable joy. I love you and I'm so thankful for everything you're doing in my life and everything that you continue to do. Do you have that kind of intimate relationship with God the Father? We all have intimate relationships with others. We know what those intimate relationships look like. If you have the Spirit in you, you're going to have an intimate relationship with the Father. You're going to interact with Him. You're going to to pray to Him, and you're going to talk with Him, and you're going to listen to Him, and you're going to read His Word, and, and, and you're going to obey His instruction, and you're going to love Him, knowing that He first loved you, knowing that He has adopted you. That's what Paul is saying. He's telling them, look, you Galatians are sons. God has put His Spirit in you. I mean, he was there 18 months earlier when they got saved. He saw... He saw the transaction. He saw it happen. He's saying, You're not slaves any longer. Don't listen to the Judaizers. You don't need to go back into slavery under the law or back to the elementary principles of this world. You're sons, your daughters, your heirs through God. Don't go back. I and mean, he is literally affirming in verse 7 that, that, the, that they are no longer slaves, but sons. And if they're sons, then they're heirs. He, he is literally confirming that they have the Holy Spirit and have received divine adoption and sonship. He is affirming and confirming their position with God, whom the Judaizers are threatening to try to take away. He's not just affirming or confirming them. He's also warning them here. He is. In verse, verse 7, verse 6 and 7, He's warning They are not slaves, right? He says that. You're not slaves, you're sons. But if they follow the teachings of the Judaizers and put themselves under the law, they will lose their freedom and become slaves to a system that will multiply either self-righteousness or despair and ultimately end in ruin. That's what will happen. And the same is true of us. If we follow the teachings of the Judaizers and try to add works of the law to faith for justification, we will suffer the same fate. We will forfeit our freedom. We will either become very prideful because we think we're good at obeying the law, or we will despair because we are terrible at it. And in the end, it will all end in our spiritual ruin total despair. Such is the fate of anyone who adds anything to faith for justification. They are accursed, as Paul said in chapter 1. Why are they accursed? They, They are literally, to be accursed means to be cut off. They, in a sense, cut themselves off from the grace and mercy of God. They give themselves over to a false gospel. This is Roman Catholicism. This is Jehovah Witnessism, this is Mormonism, it's, it, it's here today. The Judaizers are long, long gone, Their history, they're out here, they've been gone for a couple thousand years, but they really are alive and well today in false religion. If we follow these teachings, the same thing will be true of us. We need to remember that we are justified by faith alone, that our good deeds when we're outside of Christ, when we're unbelievers, our good deeds are nothing but filthy rags before God. There's nothing we can do to merit anything good from Him. In fact, we bring more judgment on us when we, even as unbelievers, when we try to earn our way with God. God is so offended when we try to earn our way with Him. He is ultimately satisfied, ultimately and eternally pleased with the meritorious work of Christ. Anyone who tries to take that away from from Christ through their own effort, is accursed, is cut off from Him. They will go to hell and spend eternity in hell. This is serious stuff. It's serious stuff. I'll uh, read something to you that somebody once said, and I don't know who wrote this. They said, if we were to take all of man's good deeds for all time and pile them sky high, they wouldn't atone for one sin. And this is true. This is what the Bible teaches. There's nothing that we can do. No courageous deeds. Even if we were to give our life for someone else on the battlefield, it doesn't atone for our sin. There's nothing that we can do. Our deeds are but filthy rags before a holy God. Isaiah 64, 6. We need to remember that that salvation is the result of God's mercy. It is the result of Christ's righteousness. It is not the result of human effort. When we believe in Jesus Christ, everything that Christ merited and accomplished for us is a credit to us. God sees us as righteous. He justifies. He adopts. We are secure secure forever and ever and ever. And then we begin to engage in good deeds, not because we're trying to get something from God, not because we're trying to earn anything, but because we love God, and we know that's what pleases Him. I'll just end very quickly here with one good quote from, from John Calvin, one of my heroes. He said this, For the Scripture everywhere proclaims that the efficient cause of eternal life being procured for us was the mercy of our Heavenly Father and His gratuitous love toward us, that the material cause is Christ and His obedience, by which He obtained a righteousness for us. Salvation was procured for us by the mercy of our heavenly father by his or through his gratuitous love for us and and he sent jesus into the world at the perfect time to be born of a woman and born under the law to obey that law perfectly and to earn for us a righteousness we could never earn for ourselves. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, when we believe in him for salvation, when we turn away from unbelief and trust in him, that righteousness, it clothes us, it it, it encapsulates us, it ensconces us, we are robed and clothed in it. That is what God sees and God justifies us and God adopts us. End of story. We are secure for all eternity. And then we live the rest of our lives loving God and seeking to please Him with our lives. It's all a matter of believing in Jesus, not based on our efforts. How are we justified? We are justified by faith alone. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. That is the truth. Never try to add anything to your faith. Never. If we do that, we are accursed. Thanks for listening.